We'll be continuing going through the book of Ecclesiastes. We're almost finished. This morning we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, looking at verses 1 through 6. Boys and girls, please make sure you have your children's bulletin. You have your own translation in there, a place you can ask questions. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, we do come before you. We do proclaim that we do love you and long to worship you. We do rejoice that you have invited us to come and worship you, that you invite us to serve us and that you serve us richly on your word even now. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed open this word up to us, that we may be changed by your word. Challenge us, Lord, where we are holding on to habits and patterns and traditions that are not of you. Give us repentance, Lord, where we are trying to do things that you have said don't do. Lord, would you do your work through your word on us that we may be more like Christ. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' great name. Amen. So we're going through Ecclesiastes together. Ecclesiastes is the book of wisdom, of applied wisdom in our Christian walk. In this part of Ecclesiastes, he spent so much time talking about the unbelieving world and how they operate in foolishness and how it doesn't work, trying to show them their need and deconstruct that to make them long for the wisdom of God as shown in Jesus Christ. But now, these last couple chapters, he's talking to those in the community. He's talking to those who have come and said, yes, I am part of this, who have confessed belief. And so this is now kind of a critique in helping us dig deeper and perhaps see areas of our Christian life where where we ourselves are being foolish. So let's be very careful here. So often we take, whenever the Bible does something sort of a critique, a lot of us in church world tend to punt that to unbelievers. But he's really talking to us now. He's talking to those on the inside, helping us to grow in our discipleship. He's basically saying, look, the wise rejoice in the friendship of God, but the foolish are exhausted because instead of resting in the work of Christ, the foolish tries to maintain peace with God, tries to maintain that friendship based on their religious efforts. And it's just exhausting. And it's exhausting because life is hard. He's talking again to those in the religious community. For those of us who've been united to Christ by faith, life is still full of challenges, right? I mean, things don't just go away because we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And it's in the midst of these struggles in life that we have to almost defiantly remind ourselves of grace. Because we don't know what's going to come next in life. And so it's with that setup and that context, we then get to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Look with me, if you will, at verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, 
or whether both alike will be good. This is God's word. We're going to make some sense out of this. I know this is a section of Ecclesiastes that seems very odd on a superficial reading, but just a little scratching on the surface, it really becomes quite clear. So the question here this text is getting at is this. It's, does our ignorance about the future, does our ignorance, does our not knowing about the uncertainties in life out there, does that empower us by faith or does that paralyze us with fear? That's really the issue this whole text is getting to because wisdom empowers us with hope to face the unknown while foolishness paralyzes us with fear. And which one do we live in as believers? Again, don't punt this to unbelievers. This is as believers. When we really look at our life, are we living in faith? Are we living in fear? And that gets us to our theme for today. I want to give you a a sentence to kind of sum up the sermon today. You can remember this perhaps better and talk about it over lunch. It's this. The gospel empowers God's people with hope to face the unknown. Isn't that so simple? Oh, I hope that's true. Let's see together if this is true. Because you see, when facing the unknown, the gospel gives us a risky hope, a courageous hope, and a working hope. Let's work through these together and see what we have. First of all, we have a risky hope. So it starts out with that weird cast your bread upon the waters thing. What is that? We're supposed to go stand out at the pond with a loaf of Wonder Bread and start throwing it? You know, what's he talking about there? This is a metaphor for nautical commerce. You know, you put goods on a ship and you send them off to, to sell them. We know that this takes a long time. In, in, in First Kings, we're told that King Solomon had a fleet of ships to do just that. Take all this stuff, go off and sell it and bring back wealth. And First Kings tells us that this fleet was on a three-year cycle. So they would be, it would go off and it would be three years before it came back. And then we saw last week, if you weren't here, you can look in uh, chapter 10, verse 19. We saw that bread that is for laughter. And in context, that was what? Living in community, sharing hospitality. And so we put all this together. Okay, what's he telling us here? Well, just like you have to have faith and you have to take a little bit of risk to send your stuff out on ships and hope for a profit. And just like bread is meant to be in community, what's he saying? He's saying, look, be purposeful in living a life of faith. Wisdom seeks more. It risks. Grace creates courage. That's what he's trying to tell us here. Recently, I was looking into some church planting resources. I'm I'm trying to help out JP and be a resource for him so he's not so all alone. And I I saw this video and it said this. The whole theme of the video had this big background. It said this. It said, attempt something impossible. So crazy That if God doesn't show up, it will be a disaster. This was PCA training. This was, you know, stiff, staunchy, white people, Presbyterians saying this. Do something impossible. That's what he's talking about. That's not usually how we think about church and ministry, is it? You see, outreach will never happen unless we take the risk of venturing out. You see, rather than being changed by heartfelt worship of a holy God, rather than being empowered by the Spirit then for outreach, we often come to church to receive, to get comfortable feelings and peace, and maybe even to get some nostalgia. But see, this is really about, no, being the church. This is about 
giving of ourselves, being risky, casting our bread upon the waters, taking a risk for grace. Okay, what does that look like? Verse 2 tells us what it looks like. It's lavish generosity. Back then, giving something to seven was considered perfection. So when he says, give something even to eight, he's saying, go beyond perfection. Do even more. This is lavish, enthusiastic giving of yourself. That's weird in our culture, isn't it? To be that selfless in giving of yourself. Especially verse 2 says what? In the face of disaster. That's not what we do in the face of disaster, is it? You see, when disaster is pending, the wise person, the person grounded in grace, still gives of themselves. Because the gospel encourages that risk. That is not naturally how we are, is it? In the face of uncertainty, in the face of challenges, what do we do? We hunker down, right? We withdraw. We close ourselves off from others. Let, let me get some control of my life back. Things are going crazy right now, and, and then I'll get back out there. Ecclesiastes tells us that's foolishness. That's not wisdom. You see, the wise person trusts God's promises. The wise person is rooted and grounded in grace. And so they have substance. They have a solidness to their life we saw back in chapter 10. This really is what the idea of peace is. It's not the absence of conflict. It's being wholesome. It's having substance. It's being right, basically. That's what he's talking about here. In the face of disaster, the person grounded in grace has substance, a solidness to their life. And that's exactly what we need because life is uncertain, isn't it? We don't know what's going to happen. Do you notice four times in six verses we're told, you don't know. He's really emphasizing our ignorance of the future and what that does to us. That lack of knowledge we face with fear, which we then hunker down and it paralyzes us. Or by grace, we face that with courage Wisdom gives us a risky hope. See, we need that. Because we're control freaks by nature. We don't just want to know parts of the future, what's going to happen for trivia's sake, do we? Let's be really candid with ourselves. It's like the 11th commandment, you know, right? Thou shalt not lie to thyself. We want to know more so we can control, right? See, verse 3 reminds us, though, that even if we know, we still don't have any control. Let's look together at the children's translation of verse 3. Here's what he's getting at. He says this. He says, We know when it's about to rain because of the dark clouds. We know that when a tree falls, it stays there unless moved. Knowing those things doesn't take away our fear of the future. See, what he's saying there in verse 3 is, look, having certain specific knowledge, you may think you want that, but it still doesn't help you. You know that once a tree lays on the ground, it's not going anywhere, right? Okay. How does that encourage you to the future? You don't want knowledge just to know. You want knowledge to feel in control. You see, most religions outside of Christianity, they appeal to that sense of control. What do they mostly teach? doesn't matter what form it is. It's going to come down to this. My religious works, my devotional actions... My moral behavior, however this religion defines morality, when I do those things, it pleases the deity, and then the deity performs for me and gives me what I want. 
They give me what I want because I gave them what they want. And that gives me a sense of control and certainty. And we Christians try to do it with Christianity too, don't we? Life's not working out. Things are hard. Oh, dear God, please fix this for me. And I will. It used to be, go to Africa and be a missionary. But now there's probably missionary. There's, there's little boys in Africa right now going, oh, God, if you'll fix this for me, I'll, I'll go to America and be a missionary. God, God, take care of this situation and I'll start tithing. I'll go on this mission trip or I'll serve more. Whatever it is, we try to bargain with God, don't we? I will do this religious action and so you'll come through for me, right? That's how it works. That is not living in the reality of grace offered to us in the gospel. It's foolishness. It's not wisdom. The wise person who basks in the friendship of God doesn't have to control everything. I really want you to get this. So I want to I I get your mindset into a, a movie. I know some of you don't like this, but this is how our culture really thinks, and it really resonates with a lot of us too. I want you to think back to that movie. It came out, like, what, 10 years ago probably? Finding Nemo. Again, if you haven't seen Finding Nemo, I'm sorry. You need to get yourself off of Mars, out of the cave, get your fingers out of your ears, and open your eyes, because this is like a major cultural movie. This is how our culture speaks, the stories of our culture. So in Finding Nemo, Fish loses his little sunfish. He's searching around. He's trying to find him. He ends up getting swallowed by a whale. And what happens is, at first you think the whale is eating him, but then it turns out the whale is trying to help them because the whale can swim faster and further. So he's like giving them an express train to where they need to go. And once he gets there, the whale is like, okay, you need to leave now. So he's going to eject them out of his blowhole. But to do that, they've got to fall down out of his mouth. I think we have a picture of this scene, right? They have to fall down out of his mouth. And they have to, it's really dark, sorry. Anyway, if you can't see that, Marlon is the orange and white fish. He's holding on to part of the tongue of the whale. And his friend Dory, who's not a control freak, is like, let's go. The whale says it's time to go. And he's like, don't go down there. That's eating down there. That's digestion down there. Don't go there. And the whale says, you've got to let go. It's time to let go. And the, and, the, and the movie kind of stops at this point. This is like the highlight of the movie. Will Marlin let go of being a control freak and just step out in courage to find his son? Or will he insist on knowing everything for certain before he does anything and miss the opportunity to catch his son? That's where this movie hangs up. And that's where we often get hung up as well. We are so afraid of the future. The next step is risky. We're so desperate to know for certain what's going to happen that we just cannot take that risk because we have no hope that things are going to work out. That's where so many of us Christians live our lives, isn't it? Even though we confess faith in Jesus Christ, even though we say that we believe the gospel, we really don't believe the gospel in our chests, do we? We're too afraid of the future. We don't live in hope. Things aren't going to work out. We've got to control. I need to know more. See, but even when facing uncertainty, the wise person, the person seeking to surrender more and more to grace, that person lives in hope, and that hope empowers risk. You see, once we get the gospel in our hearts, once we recognize that we live under the approval of God, that He holds on to us, that He cherishes us, that He promises to take care of us. Once we believe that, in that hope, we can go and take risks with the life God has given us. 
Okay, this is not a motivational speech. So go out there and do it. This is specifically practical. What does this mean? This means that you should get involved in a ministry that makes you uncomfortable. I can suggest one called the Orangeburg Project. You can show mercy to someone in need that you would usually ignore. You know what I'm talking about. Just don't make eye contact and they'll, they'll go away. Start a friendship with that neighbor you really don't like. Maybe you're that neighbor. I sometimes wonder if I'm that neighbor. Pray that God will use that friendship with that neighbor or not ignoring that person or getting involved where you're uncomfortable to open up the opportunity for a conversation to introduce someone to Jesus. That's a risky hope. That's a risky gospel. But you see, the gospel empowers God's people with hope to face the unknown. See, and when facing the unknown, what the gospel gives us a risky hope. But the gospel also gives us a courageous hope, which is where our passage goes next. I want you to put yourself back into the mindset of an ancient Middle Eastern, you know, Israeli farmer. You're looking at this big bag of seed, which you and your family could eat. It's food. And you're looking at this field and do I eat this now for the next three months? Or do I put it in the ground in the hopes of getting more later? See, the farmer has to sow and harvest in courageous hope, facing the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen. It may rain during harvest season, the crop is ruined. It may scorch it during those early days of planting and the seed dies in the ground. See, and his farming temptation is our temptation in life to wait for everything to be just right before we start, right? Waiting for ideal conditions, however, again, let's be candid, most often means doing nothing, doesn't it? The ideal very rarely shows up. Here's what we said for the kids to help them understand this in verse 4. Let's look together at the children's translation of verse 4. It says this, Don't be so afraid of what you don't know that you do nothing. Live in hope. You see, boys and girls, this is why you're afraid of the dark, by the way. You don't know what's hiding there in the dark until your mind starts making all sorts of things to fill up that unknown void. Your mind makes up all sorts of scary things, makes you afraid of the dark. But can I just remember, remind you as that great prophet of our time, Veggie Tales, says that God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. So you can, you can take your fear to Jesus when you're afraid of the dark. Ask him to help you be brave and he will. And adults, we may not be as afraid of the dark anymore. But our mind still fills the unknown with all sorts of scary things, doesn't it? It takes courage to step out in hope and not be afraid of the dark unknown. You see, gospel wisdom rooted in a relationship with Jesus gives us that courage. But foolishness scares us into waiting until everything is perfect. How many of you know someone right now in your life who doesn't know Jesus? You don't have to raise your hand. You want to talk to them. You even came to the class back in May, August, and you have a pretty good idea how to start, what to do, and you keep waiting for the right opportunity. Yet that opportunity just never seems to come, does it? 
may I suggest that you're afraid of the dark unknown? What will they do? What will they say? What will they think of me? What if they ask me a question I can't answer? Instead of waiting for the perfect opportunity, pray for courage to talk to them. And then make the decision in advance. You know what? The next time I see them, that is the perfect opportunity. You don't know what's going to happen. That's why it's scary. See, but not only does God promise us, promise us courage in the gospel, but his word gives us wisdom on how to have courage. Look with me at verse 5. He tells us what to do. He says, look, as you don't know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Okay, here's what he's saying. We don't know, even today with all of our medical technology, we don't understand how life comes to a baby. And yet we still have lots of children as a culture. That uncertainty about the origin of life doesn't seem to paralyze us when it comes to having babies. So too, we don't know everything God is going to do. Why do we let that lack of knowledge paralyze our actions? We should still live in hope. See, we don't know God's providence. That's a big theological word that means God's orchestrating and controlling everything. We don't know what God's going to do next. We don't. We don't know what he has in store for us for the future. We live constantly in a great deal of uncertainty. And what the scripture is getting at here is that faith flourishes in the uncertainties of God's providence. It doesn't flounder in them. And this is real life Christianity. We struggle, don't we? We don't understand. We don't know what's going to happen. We wonder, why did God take this away from me when I really wanted this to work out? Why did God put this in my life when I did not want that? Why did this prayer not get answered? Why did this dream for my life never come about? Why does life have to be so hard so often? That's real life, isn't it? And if that's not you, your neighbors are thinking those things. They could use some hope. See, this life will always have uncertainty. There is so much we don't know, but the gospel empowers God's people with hope to face the unknown. See, when facing the unknown, the gospel gives us a risky hope. The gospel gives us a courageous hope. And finally, the gospel gives us a working hope. This passage closes with showing that in the face of fear, in the face of uncertainty, gospel hope gets to work. The farmer back then didn't sow in the middle of the day. It was too hot and this wouldn't work out. So they either sowed early in the morning or they sowed in the evening, depending on their preference. But in verse 6, in the face of uncertainty, this farmer does both. He works twice as hard. Okay, so what's the principle today? When confronted with fear of the unknown, do twice as much for God to bless. Why? Because we don't know what he's going to do. Now, I want to make sure you don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not about salvation. This is not about how you become one of God's people by working twice as hard and get God to notice you. No, this is about how God's people live out what God has done for them by grace. How do we live it out? How does, as Philippians says, you know, how do we work out our salvation? This is about Christians knowing more of the gospel in our lives, what we call discipleship, having a depth to our Christianity. 
See, for those rooted in grace, what Ecclesiastes has been calling wisdom, the unknown drives us to a working hope of what God could do. Whereas foolishness makes us sit back in fear of what God hasn't yet done. I've used this story before, but I think it's very applicable. I read this in a book a couple years ago. I don't know if it's a parable or if it actually happened, so I want to give that, that caveat. Right after World War II, there's a shoe company who saw these third world countries opening up for new markets, and they had made some connections in their time in Africa serving um, in the army. And so they started this new shoe company, and they sent a salesman to the spot in Africa. He gets there, and they get a telegram the very next day. Returning by flight immediately. No one here wears shoes. They send a second salesman there. They get a telegram from him after he gets there. Send more shoes. Nobody wears shoes. Which one of those guys are we? When we are looking at our increasingly immoral and pagan culture. I would guess that most of us tend to be like the first guy. Forget it. No one cares about church. Or my favorite, God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah if he doesn't judge America. See, but those who Ecclesiastes calls wise, those who get the gospel of grace, who have a risky, courageous hope, they look at our increasingly pagan culture and says, wow, nobody cares about the church. It's wide open for the gospel. Send more shoes. Which attitude do we have? You know, it could be that our country is not post-Christian at all. In fact, I could make a very compelling case, and I can over lunch or coffee if you'd like me to. I could make the case that America is still a pre-Christian country. That our land has been very Christianized, absolutely, on the outside, a good veneer. But there has never been a time in our history when a majority of our country embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and then lived out the reality of the gospel. You cannot find that in our history. It could yet be that the Holy Spirit hasn't done that yet. We don't know. Are we about seeing the Holy Spirit send more shoes? Or are we just about, take me home, it's over. You see, this text reminds us that in grace, the gospel empowers our hope to get to work. Here's how an older, wiser, more sanctified and experienced pastor than I says this. This is from Philip Ryken. He's currently the president of Wheaton College. He used to be the pastor of 10th Pres in Philadelphia. He says this. Live boldly and creatively. Try something new. Be a spiritual entrepreneur. Even if you are not completely sure what will work, try everything you can to serve Christ in the world that desperately needs the gospel. Send more shoes. Dear flock, is that kind of hope in you? Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, is that kind of hope in you? It can be. We can have this kind of hope in our lives because 
although each one of us is guilty before a holy God, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, He came to earth. He lived a life of perfect righteousness and obedience before God. He lived the life that God demands of each one of us. And then He voluntarily submitted Himself to die for the sins of His people. The wages of sin is death. And as one who did not sin, Jesus did not deserve to die. And yet he voluntarily did so, so that our sins, your sin, could be placed on him and punished as it deserves before a holy God. He died the death we should die. See, and in his death, our sins are forgiven. In his life, his righteousness is given to us. And so in his resurrection, we have the proof That God accepted his sacrifice. And so now we can have new life in the resurrected Christ. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. It's available to you today to give you a risky, courageous, working hope. Is that in you? See, you can have those things not merely because Jesus earned them. That's fantastic. But Jesus also lived and modeled this kind of hope. Don't forget that Jesus Christ, as fully human, His knowledge of God's will was from the Scriptures, just like yours. And so Jesus Christ went to the cross, not knowing for sure, but believing, but hoping that the prophecies of Him being resurrected were true. That God would raise Him from the dead. That's a risky faith. That's a courageous faith. That is a working faith. In his hope, in his father's eternal plan, gave him the power to have that risky and courageous hope to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And it gave him a working hope to empower him to live and die for his people. That kind of hope, that kind of substance, that kind of strength and power can be yours today in Jesus Christ. And again, this passage is primarily talking to the religious community. Don't punt all this stuff to people who don't know Jesus. He is talking to people who've confessed faith in Christ, saying, you can get more of this in your chest. This can be the substance of your life. So I don't care how long you've been going to church. I've said this before, but really hear me this time. Forget everything you think you know about Christianity. Cast off everything you've called religion. And simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. And he will give you this radical, substantial, powerful hope to face the uncertainties of your life. Don't you want that? Don't wait. Confess Christ as Lord today. And if you've already done that, let this gospel get more and more of your heart today. Ask Him for a risky, courageous, and working hope. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we want this hope. Lord, we live in such a fast-paced, overly scheduled, busy world where so many of us just live in a quiet desperation. Things aren't working. We're not happy. We don't know what to do. Lord, would you give us hope? Would you sear the reality of your gospel into our hearts and give us a risky, courageous, working hope?
And Lord, as we pray for ourselves, we also pray, Lord, that you would give us compassionate eyes for our neighbors. Lord, every one of our neighbors lives an overly scheduled, super busy life of quiet desperation. And they have no hope. Lord, would you give us courage in the gospel to risk a friendship? Would you give us hope in your grace to work towards building a friendship that we might introduce them to you? Would you give us courage and opportunity? Because, Lord, the results are up to you. There's no pressure there for us on that. So help us remember that and have courage. Lord, would you build your kingdom in us and through us is our prayer. Give us this radical hope, even in this moment, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, would you please stand?